If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor. And it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection. And I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hi there. Welcome to the Behind the Mirror podcast. My name is Anna, and I am so happy you're joining us today. Today, I'm sitting down with author of the book, Post-Traumatic Church Syndrome. Her name is Reba Riley, and this book is her journey of experiencing 30 different religions before her 30th birthday. This is such a heartfelt interview, and I cannot tell you how much fun we had doing this show. I teared up a few times. I laughed a bunch of times. She's so real, so genuine, and her story is just profound. Of course, this amazing journey of hers brings us back to everything we talk about here, which is how God's love, God's presence, that divine spirit that we know can be found everywhere. So cool. I can't wait for you guys to meet her. Before we dive into the episode, I have to give a shout out to Alice Ranker. This episode is brought to you by her. She's one of our patrons, and I just love you, Alice. I love contacting you. I love chatting with you. You are just a brilliant, beautiful mind. So Alice, thank you for your support of this show. If you are interested in becoming a supporter of this show, you can learn more about that by going to my website, justajesusfollower.com, and clicking on the button Patreon. I love you guys so much, and I can't wait to introduce you to Reba. So here we go. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I am with Reba Riley. She is an author, speaker, former evangelical poster child, and lover of all things sparkly. She lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, and she's the author of Post-Traumatic Church Syndrome, which recounts her spiritual quest of experiencing 30 religions before her 30th birthday. Riley invites questioners, doubters, misfits, and curious believers to participate in the universal search to heal what life has broken. Oh my gosh. I just, I love all things I just said already. So welcome Reba. We're so glad you're here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, Anna. Yes. And I, and you and I were talking about this before we hit record, but I found you and your book based on the title. I was doing this Google search for post-traumatic church disorder, post-traumatic religion, all these things. And your book popped up and I found you. So I didn't know this was actually a thing. And so when you went to title this book, did you have that in mind? Was this a thing then? Or how did you come to title it that? So post-traumatic church syndrome is the is the title that I came up with in my own life far before the book to try to explain what I was going through when I was going through it. And um, it, it was meant to be 
serious, but also, you know, have a little bit of a tongue in cheek to it. Um, but it's, it's not meant in any way to take away from what people go through as a result of spiritual injuries. It's just a way for us to begin to talk about it. Um, and so I had given this term in, to the experience of my own life. And um, I wrote an article that had the post-traumatic church syndrome in the title of the article that went viral um, a couple years prior to the book coming out. And so when they were, the publisher was talking about public, uh, talking about titling the book, um, that was the natural way to go because it uh, just encompassed what I was dealing with at the time. And um, what I've found is if I'm in any room of people uh, speaking and I say, who here has post-traumatic church syndrome? you always get a reaction. So people understand it pretty viscerally. Um, and so that's been really interesting to, to experience. Oh my gosh, totally. And I, the title alone is captivating, as you just said, because that's a universal thing that so many people, no matter what church they come from, probably what faith background they come from can relate to that immediate sentence. They're like, oh my gosh, yes, that's me. So so I want to dig into your story and how you came to go about this journey of 30 different religions before your 30th birthday. It's absolutely fantastic. So I'm imagining something catapulted you onto this journey. I, what the heck happened on your 29th birthday? Well, um, what happened is I was, I was dealing all through my 20s with a, a, a chronic very serious uh, and an undiagnosable illness that doctors kept telling me was in my head. Um, and if enough people tell you that, you begin to believe it. Uh, and I was very, very sick. Um, and I was spending about 70% of my time in bed, um, if not more than that at that time. And, um, and on my 29th birthday, there was a it was a birthday party for me. Everyone was waiting for me. And I barely even had the strength to like get myself showered, get myself dressed. I didn't even want to go to my own birthday party. I was just, um, it was one of those, one of those, pardon the expression, come to Jesus moments <laughs> yeah. where I, where I just, um, I realized that what I was dealing with physically was bad and it was, but, I also had to confront that spiritually speaking, I would never be well, even if I physically got well, if I didn't deal with the anger and bitterness that I had in my, in my heart towards uh, God, towards the church, towards anything at all spiritual. And, and it's like the illness really forced me as it does for many people, illness forced me to, mm -hmm. to face my spirituality. And that just happened on my, happened to happen on my 29th birthday. And, um, uh, and that set me on this path of trying to repair my spirituality um, and and go on this journey of, of forgiveness. And I didn't really know what I was going to find. I just knew that I didn't want to be angry and bitter uh, anymore. And I wanted to, to feel whole and, um, and healed in my spirit. And so I began the, the journey through 30 religions um, during my 29th year. I love this so much. And when you said that you felt this anger and this bitterness that you had been harboring 
And, and here you are on your 29th birthday with this illness and with those emotions that I'm sure were super strong at that point. I know a lot of people listening that probably caught their attention because a lot of the listeners of this show, they resonate with that, that anger, that bitterness in regards to church and, and God at times and religion and the whole package. So can you expand a little bit about that, where that anger and bitterness was coming from? Yeah, I, I can I can go back and explain that, but I think it's important to address that, at least for me, it wasn't confined just to, you know, it's, I wish you could just draw some neat lines around it and be like, I was just angry at God and just bitter about the church or whatever. But when that's at the central point in your life, there isn't anything else that isn't attached to it. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything revolved, at least for me, around religion and God at one point. And so when I became angry and bitter about those things and lost my connection with um, with God and lost all kinds of things along with that, um, I just had this huge crater in the center of myself that I couldn't, that I couldn't get around. I mean, it was, it was, it was there. I treated it like a hazmat site. And, um, and so I think that people will probably resonate with that when it's not just, you know, it doesn't just affect you when you think about praying. It, it's like, it's a constant thing that you're carrying with you. One thing that people have said is, is that I didn't speak a lot about my actual experiences in the church. And I did that for a reason. Um, the reason is that there is, are a million ways to get broken. Uh, and I didn't want to insert my story. I just wanted to show where I, what I did with my brokenness. And so um, I think it's less important, at least for me, it was less important to tell that story than it was to say, hey, I ended up really spiritually broken. And this is how I went on this journey of healing. Um, one story that I do relate in the book, though, that was a, a breaking point for me, one of the many breaking points was um, when I was part of a, uh, a discipleship group um, that was very close. It was a women's group and all the members got mm. together beforehand and had basically decided that I was voted out of the group and I didn't know. And so I had, I had come to this meeting and at the end of the meeting, they um, told me that I was, I, my walk, that my, my failure uh, as a Christian, quote unquote, was affecting their, their walk with Christ as a group. And, um, and I was bringing them all down mm. with my, my questions and my doubts. And so I was not um, welcome to come back. And they left me there in a Starbucks crying, um, just bawling my eyes out. Oh. And that was, I, I wouldn't say that's the last time. I mean, it's not like that was the last time that I ever went to a group or went to church or anything. It's just that that one stands out in my mind as so it was so damaging because I was very close to the people in that group, the women. And I, and I lived across the country at the time and I was, I was going through all kinds of things and they, they knew that. I mean, we, we met uh, twice weekly. I was friends with all of them, but the betrayal aspect of it was really hard. Yeah. Um, so that that one stands out, and I know there are so many people who have a version of that story, uh, whether it's a women's group or, or a church or whatever. But that experience of, um, for your own good, <laughs> to give you a wake up call, you know, being basically chastised by the group, um, and it's it's just really devastating. 
Yes. And I imagine when you talked earlier about the forgiveness piece and moving through bitterness, I imagine it had elements of that to it because a lot of people coming out of church hurt, it that was their community. Like you said, it's like all the the things entangled themselves around this one thing this one common element, which is usually their community. And so that betrayal from those people that that you loved and you were so devoted to and loyal to, and these were your closest friends, and they, what feels like, turn on you, although I'm sure they have their own, <laughs> their own reasons for why they would have said they would have done that. But being on the receiving end of that, it feels like a betrayal. And so I imagine part of this journey included a healing from that. Am I right? Oh, yes. But that, I mean, it was, it's a healing of um, everything from the way that I, I thought to um, how I was able to connect with God. It wasn't just about forgiving people who had hurt me in the name of God, although that was part of it. It was much more about relearning or relearning how to connect with something bigger than myself outside of the prescribed path that I had been told was the only way. Um, and I think we're all familiar with that, uh, in the evangelical world of the, 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 the corner on truth and the one true truth. And, um, uh, and it's, it's very damaging and theology. It can be very damaging. Yes. And so you embark on this year long journey and, and I was reading some of the highlights from your journey, um, earlier this week where it says you were interrogated about your sex life by Amish grandmothers and how you disco danced in a Buddhist temple. And I would have paid money to watch that by the way. And then (laughs) you, you fasted 30 days without food or wine and you washed your girly parts in a mosque bathroom. I forgot that's on the cover, isn't it? It's totally on the cover. And then you were audited by Scientologists, which that is completely fascinating to me. And you learned to meditate with an urban monk you snuck into a Yom Kippur service with a fake grandpa. And I just, I look at this list and I'm, see, this is what we're taught to fear inside the box that you just described is don't go in Buddhist temples. Don't be near a mosque unless, you know, of course you're there to evangelize. And and so tell me like this, this whole experience, like that alone, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm fascinated. You were really interrogated about your sex life by an Amish grandmother? Please do tell. Uh, interrogate, interrogation might be a little bit of hy- uh, hyperbole, but I was heavily questioned by a, a, a large group of Amish women, um, including grandmothers, there was a, a wide range of ages, um, about how I uh, lived with my husband before we were married. And, um, and there was a lot of, uh, that went along with that. So it was, it was really interesting because how, you know, they were, I was a, uh, a curiosity to them. Uh, I was a, a woman, the only woman who had ever actually the only non Amish person, English person, as they would say, who had ever, um, asked to come to their church. I mean, they would have people come visit the Amish community, but no, they had never invited anyone in to church. And so they were just fascinated by me just being a, an English person who was, who wanted to come, you know, be with them. But the fact that I worked and my husband was in school, just, they could not get over that. And that we lived together before we got married and all that. It was just, it was, I I thought about lying, but then I was like, you know, I, I've had enough religious guilt in my life. I, 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 
<laughs> I'm not going to lie to these Amish mothers and grandmothers. So. Oh my gosh, I love this. Yeah. Okay, so how does one decide to do, like, how did you decide today I'm going to an, an Amish community and I'm going to begin connecting with these people? How did you even end up in a Buddhist temple? Like, I, I hear your story and I'm sure my listeners are like, oh my gosh, this is fascinating. But like, how, how does that even happen? <laughs> Help us know how this happened because this is just fascinating. I wish I could say that I had a really great plan at the beginning, but I didn't. I didn't have a great plan. All I had was a list of every religion that I could think of and some that I looked up on Google. Uh, and and it was pretty haphazard at the beginning, especially because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to, for example, begin connecting with some of these people. And so I would just kind of show up. And you, if you read the book, as you walk through the journey with me, I get better at it. <laughs> it's like... Um, but you know, the Amish actually were really difficult because you can't call them on the phone. Um, uh, depend, depending on the, on the, on the, uh, on the type of community that they're in. Um, and, and so I ended up having to connect, I connected through a client that I had who was Mennonite and his cousin was Amish. And, uh, they ended up calling me from the Mennonites workshop and that's how we set it up. So it was really fascinating. Um, that was a tough one to get in there. But, oh you know, I think one of the lessons of the book and my journey is that you, you really don't know what all is around you until you set out looking. Um, it's, you only find what you seek. And so what I discovered was within two miles of my house in Columbus, Ohio at the time, um, 85% of the visits that I did were, were there, or I shouldn't say within two miles. There was a great many of them within two miles, but within say 20 miles, um, upwards of 85 or 90% were all right there. And I never would have known. I never would have known had I not uh, gone looking for those things. I love that. I love that. And I, I'm trying to put myself in your headspace, which is totally unfair, but that's how I connect. So I'm like thinking this through and I'm like, okay, if I were to sit down and set out a list of every religion I could think of, what would be my reasoning for wanting to do that? And for me, I, it would be curiosity and it would also be bucking this idea that there's only one way. And this whole idea of this box that I've been told is the only box to be in. Was that part of it? Was that part of what led you to kind of defy the boundaries that have been drawn around you? Again, I wish I could tell you I had a great plan, <laughs> but it really, it, it came to me as these things do sometimes, just as this fully formed idea that I was going to do this, not knowing what was on the other side of it for me. Not, I didn't really have any, um, reason like at the, at the beginning, except or I can't stay the way I am. I don't know any other way to do this because the prescription that I had been taught is you have a spiritual crisis, you go to church, um, you know, and that the church being the church that I had grown up with. And, um, and that, that wasn't going to work. And there wasn't like a, you know, a, a support group or, or something that I could find. It was a very specific injury that I was dealing with. And I felt extremely alone in it. And so for me, it was just, it was being able to put actions that were concrete around a problem that felt far too large to handle. So the problem was 
I have this massive spiritual injury. I'm very, very broken. I'm angry and bitter. And the solution for me was almost as if the 30 religions journey was a ladder and that those were rungs. And it's like I was trying to climb out of this, um, you know, space that I was in. And so it was just a matter of like, of, of, of taking a step. And I think what I found through that was, um, when you start taking actions, it ends up leading to more actions and, and it ends up mm-hmm. snowballing and turning into something that you, you really never saw coming, if that makes sense. So I did, I, all I knew is I wanted to, I couldn't stay the way I was. I didn't know how to move on. And this was my action plan. I love that. I love that. I it actually makes it better when you put it that way because it just shows the the raw state you were in and how authentic you went about this. And I think that that's that's probably what has drawn people to your work, at least it's what drew me to it. There's this authentic thing about this journey that you didn't think, "Oh, I'm going to go visit all these religions to write a book about it." It's like you actually we're trying to climb out of your own hell hole and find your own way in your own path. And it led you through this. And I, I just, I love the rawness of that so much. Thank you for saying that because I, uh, there has been some criticism mostly from people who haven't actually read the book that I was, um, you know, just doing a quote unquote year experiment or I was, uh, you know, some sort of religious tourist or something. And, And, it was so far from the truth and it's so far from the spirit of the book because Mm -hmm. I really just was showing up at that time in my life because I had, you know, I, I needed healing and I, I was desperate. Um, and I was very, very sick. So I, no, I definitely wasn't thinking I'm going to write a book. I was thinking, I don't know how I'm going to survive today. Um, right. And so (laughs) had I known I was going to write a book, I would have taken more notes, better notes and notes, not on napkins. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> isn't that life though life is just a bunch of napkins and post-it notes with crap written on them I, I think that is life at least mine <laughs> the older I get like yeah. that is how life works yep yes okay so how did your friends like your Christian friends and, and family and community how did they react to this or did they even know you were doing this uh I you know I I didn't quote unquote go public with it until way into the journey, maybe six months in, uh, six months and a half, at, at which point I, I started a blog. Um, and it was interesting because about half at this time, this would have been Facebook was the main social media site. And about half of the people that were Facebook friends of mine were from that Christian world and about half of them weren't. And, um, and the reaction was so supportive from people who were not part of that world. And so, um, it it was like, I was like committing all kinds of sins. I mean, I was getting these messages from people like, I'm praying for your soul (laughs) and and just all these, you know, messages. And it, it felt like it was like team Reba versus team Jesus. Um, and so it, I would, I definitely did not feel supported. Um, and then when it comes to my family, uh, it took, it took my family a long time to come around. Uh, and in the book, I think one of the really interesting relationships that you see is between me and my mother and how she, to an extent, went on the journey with me just because she's my mom. And so she's witnessing this from her 
you know, evangelical point of view. And so it's interesting to see how she made peace with it um, through the process. But it took a while and it was pretty tough because I really didn't have the support of my family. I had the support of my husband. My mother-in-law was a huge supporter. But anyone with the with the the Christian uh, background just thought I was really wacky. And I was I was way out there and I was possibly going to hell in a in a handbasket. Oh, I'm sure yes, I'm sure they did think that. And I always come back to this because so many people, like what you're saying, although your experience is yours and unique to you, what you just described on Facebook is so not unique because so many people have the people on their friend list that are former life and all things evangelical. And then they have friends who are not in that world. And so a lot of people feel torn because they're scared. Oh my gosh, if I share this part of my life, then I'm going to get hate messages, which is what you experienced. I'm sure they weren't hateful messages, but you experienced the concerns, the prayers, all the messages that people are petrified to get in their inbox. How did you handle that? Because that's a very real thing a lot of people face daily. Actually, I did get a lot of hate mail. Um, that came later. Oh, <laughs> that came later uh. with, with a book. With, with the book, don't write a don't write a book with the title "Post Traumatic Church Syndrome" if you if you don't want to get some, <laughs> some hate email. Um, oh. How did I handle it? You know, I don't at the time. I, I I'll t I'll say how I handle it now. Um, it it I first of all I I'm very careful about what I share, um, and and I'm very clear on the reason that I'm sharing it on social media. Um, I and I'm always make sure that I'm taking care of myself first um, and, and not just, you know, putting something out there that I, I just want to make sure that if I'm being vulnerable, it's for the right reason. Um, and so that's one thing. Um, and then I, I mean, I would say my advice is, is to share, discriminate with your sharing. I mean, be, you know, be very careful about it. Because not everyone deserves to be in your life in the same way, um, and and that's the that's the issue with social media is that what you're putting out there. You you have to be able to understand that the, the media is going to come back to you. You know you're going to get those responses. So if it's not something you feel up to, then don't post it. Right. Just don't you know, save it for your, your close friends who are supportive and your, your, you know, people who really love you. Um, but on the flip side, if you feel that it's something that you, you, you stand for and you want to, um, stand up for or whatever, post it, but know that you're going to get the blowback and recognize that as long as you are clear that you are, um, you know, Firm, fair, and friendly is what I always say. <laughs> um, if you're firm, fair, and friendly, and you're you're not responsible for how people react to you, and I would say do not engage. You're never going to win a battle with someone on Facebook. That that's a losing battle, and all it does is suck your energy. So that's how I handle it now. I, I really don't. I don't spend any time worrying about people who don't like me. They don't like my message. They don't whatever. It it it. it my, it's not for them. Right. Then. It's not the right time or it's not, you know, not the right message. And that's okay. Okay. I love that. Firm, fair, and friendly. I, I'm going to add that to my list of post-it notes, by the way, because I absolutely love that. <laughs> that's so good. Did you come up with that on your own? Well done. No, actually, I didn't. Uh, firm, fair, and friendly came from a therapist of mine. Great. I'm a huge proponent of therapy. I think, 
it's a great thing for people to go through. And, uh, and her, an excellent therapist who that was what she would say is, is firm, fair and friendly. And that stands for, you know, as as far in personal relationship, in personal relationships and business relationships and, um, you know, on social media, it's just a good it's, it's a good way to have boundaries around your um, your interactions. I love your therapist already. I love it. I love it. That's so yes. good. Okay, so you were a self-described poster child of evangelicalism. So after this journey, what would you say was the main thing that shifted in your belief about God? Everything. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> Everything shifted. I bet. I bet. Everything shifted. I would say if you imagine um, me on one side of something and God on the other side of this massive block in between us, the block for me was religion and every, all the dogma, all the teaching, everything that I was supposed to do or be or have or believe or wear or, <laughs> you know, whatever it was um, in order to be able to have that direct connection with God. Um, and through this, journey through the religions piece by piece that block just got completely taken out away it's it's no longer there Hmm. um and so I discovered that there are so many ways to connect with the divine and something that's that's larger than ourselves so many so many ways and now the way I think about it is if there's something between you and God it's not God it's something else because there's nothing that can ever stand. And this, you know, uh, one thing I gained back was my love of the Bible. That took a while. Um, but, you know, yeah. that there's the, be- the beautiful verse about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. But I feel that religion very often does separate us from the love of God. Yeah. And anytime that there's something between you and God, it's, it's not God because God will meet you wherever you are or aren't. God is there everywhere, always. And um, it's just that fundamental shift in understanding um, that it's ever-present divine love Mm -hmm. that is just all-encompassing. And there isn't a, um, there isn't a, (laughs) a, anything that you have to do or be or believe to earn it. And, um, you know, I'm not a mother. I know you said you're your mother of four, but I can only imagine that it's the way that you love a, your, your baby when your baby is born. I mean, all encompassing, your baby doesn't have to do anything to deserve it. And it's like, that's the experience of love that I have, that I was able to reconnect with through the journey for which I'm very grateful. Oh, Yeah. I, I bet. And I um, I was thinking about one of uh, the listeners of this show. He shared in our Facebook group the story of how he was at a pagan ceremony of some sorts. And he was like, I felt the spirit of God there. And he's like, it caught me so off guard because it's that same feeling that he would have in a church service or in, in his church or in his own like private space connecting with God. And he's like, and I felt this in this pagan ceremony that has nothing to do with Jesus or anything. And he's like, but I felt the presence of God. And he was so like flabbergasted by that. Like that just blew the lid off of his jar. So did you have a lot of moments like that where you're sitting in a Buddhist temple and you're like, wait, 
I think God's here too. <laughs> like, did that happen often? Yes, God was everywhere. It was incredible. What I tell people is that anytime that you find love, real, true love, you find God. And there wasn't one place that I went where I didn't experience a glimpse of that. Mm. And that was so enlightening. And yeah, I had some major head scratching moments, especially at the beginning. Um, uh, the Hindu temple was my first experience that was uh, a, a not Christian um, uh, service. And I had a, an experience very much like what you're talking about, where <clears throat> in the uh, in the temple, they had these different rooms dedicated to different deities. And they all had different representations of the divine and it, what we would have called in Christian culture idols, right? Right. So I went, I went around and met them all, as they said, and, you know, went through the rituals. The last one was a room that had a, um, it had a fountain. And I asked the priest, what is this for? And he said, this is, this is our um, representation of the, uh, the God who cannot be, who cannot be uh, um, seen. And I felt something very much like what you're describing where, oh, I know this God. And it was there that I discovered that you can honor the God of quote unquote one religion by performing the rituals of another. Because I, I went through the ritual with the fountain that they had. And in that moment, there, there what it was very much dedicated to the God of my childhood as I would have understood it. But I was doing it, I was doing it in this Hindu temple. And that was a huge shift in understanding for me where I recognized that the that the way that we're doing things, how we do it, all the rituals that we have in all religions, we're all just trying to put our hands around something that's so much bigger than we are. And it's whether you're, you know, splashing something with water or you're setting something on fire or you're kneeling or you're chanting or singing, all of these are just tools that we're using to reach out. And what I found is whenever you reach out, God reaches back because God's already there. And so that actually was a um, foundational shift for me was understanding that. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. I'm I'm a little teary listening to that because I had a similar experience with a Hindu friend of mine. And this was way back when, like before I was open to the idea of God being everywhere, as you said. And so I went in with the agenda of saving her for Jesus. And Oh, of course. Yes. Very different approach than what you were doing. And we were in her in her bedroom where she had her what we would have called idols, all of her representations of her gods and and I watched her pray and I will never forget that feeling of oh my goodness I know this I know what she's doing I'm watching her connect with a god that I know mm -hmm. and that was so otherworldly for me and so shifted my whole viewpoint like in one instant because she and I were so much the same when I'd gone in believing we were so different and that that marked me. I was I was very 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 moved by that experience, and so I feel like the further along I go with this mindset of 
God is everywhere. And every time you touch love, that is God, like you said, we start seeing how much more we're alike than different. And so what were some similarities that you that you picked up in these different groups of people? Because you're talking about Amish people, you're talking about Hindu people, you have all these different um, cultures that you're engaging in. But it, I'm curious, what similarities did you pick up in just in the humanity of them? That it always came back to community and connection. Mm. Reason that people gathering was to connect with each other and to connect with the divine, and to help each other, and to be a community together in pursuit of that. And that is the same no matter where you go, uh, no matter what religion. And then the other thing was um, just this beautiful understanding of any time that the people in that community are taking care of each other. That's what it's there for. That's the, that's the, that's purpose. Um, this really was driven home for me actually at a, a Christian church that I wrote about in there that had um, theology. I did not like, I, <laughs> I didn't like, I didn't like their style of worship. I didn't like their theology. I didn't like anything about it, but they had a clipboard next to this picture of this little girl who had cancer, and she was one of the um, was one of the families in the church. And that clipboard overflowing with uh, notes written in the margins of people signing up to give money and meals and help and babysitting and everything that the family needed. Mm. And I realized in that moment that it was not up to me to judge the community. It wasn't my job. Like to put that, if they were taking care of each other in that way, then that is really, really cool. And um, so that was that. I mean, that was the moment for me where I went, "Oh, okay, that's what this is really about." And that God was present there, even though I didn't like their theology, I didn't like their, you know, I didn't like anything about it. But God was there because they were there for each other. Oh, that's so beautiful. And you know, when we take off that lens, it is amazing how much easier it is to love people that we, like you said, maybe disagree with their theology or disagree with the way they practice their faith or whatnot. It's when you see the health and the beauty of people loving each other, it does make it so much more palpable. It does. And you know, one thing that I found in this journey that was so healing for me was um, if, you know, if love and forgiveness is, is going to start anywhere. It has to start with me. If I don't want to be judged, then I have to not judge. Yeah. And that actually was, it, it has, you know, it, it has to start, stop with the judging has to stop and the loving has to start with me. And when I was able to get my head around that, that it wasn't my job to stand in judgment over people's faith, um, that, I didn't have to be involved in it if I didn't like their theology. I didn't have to attend their church. I don't have to put up with their, you know, all that stuff. But I also don't, it's not my job to judge it. Right. Right. Um, and that's one thing that is, I, I would challenge everybody to really do examine yourself. Like if you're, if you're feeling, and I know I've been very judged by harshly by many people who are very religious um, and, the easiest thing to do is to just judge them right back, right? <laughs> well, that doesn't do any good. And so how I handle it now, 
um, is I, I, I mentally just release it straight back. Just like, like if you're setting judgment to me, it's like, I, okay. And I, I just think that's not my job. And I send love back out in my mind and my heart. Oh, that's so good. That is so good. And yet so hard, but I, do you find that it gets easier the oh, more you practice it that? It gets so much easier. It does. It really does. Because now, I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're discussing this book that um, occurred when I was 29 and I'm now 37. So I've been practicing this for a while. And at the beginning, it was much harder. Um, but now it's really, it's really not. It's just a way of, of being um, and, and understanding, too, that, like, we... <sighs> everyone is where they're at in their journey and they might be somewhere else in five years or a year, 10 years, just like, you know, you and I were, we used to both be on the other side of the fence with fundamentalist Christianity. Um, and we used to be those people. Right. Right. So who am I to fault the people for where they're at right now? It doesn't mean that that's where they're always going to stay either. Um, and, and, and allowing people to have their own spiritual journey, just like you want someone to allow you to have a spiritual journey is really important. Yes. Okay. So question, this was popping in my head earlier. So I imagine that there are some who are totally tracking with everything you're saying as they're listening to you talk. And then there's probably others who are like, wait a second, (laughs) I want to be able to not be judgy and I want to be able to believe that God is everywhere in everything. And it's this expansive, beautiful divine being. I want to believe that, but there's so much in their headspace blocking them from that and they feel afraid. So would you have any words of encouragement or words of advice to give to someone who wants to cross that boundary, but all the jargon in their head is so heavy and thick that it's very confusing for them to step out of those boundaries? Oh, sweetheart, be gentle with yourself. That's what I would say. Be gentle with yourself. Changing changing your mind, changing your heart, it, this is not an easy thing to do, especially if it's something that you grew up with. It's not something that happens overnight and it happens, at least for me, I mean, it, it happens by degrees. And so let yourself take the time that you need to unravel and unwrap and, you know, think through and feel into um, where you're going. It doesn't, it, it doesn't have to happen. Just boom. Now I believe this. Now I feel this. Um, what I always tell people is to, to look for, um, where you feel light and love in your life, start there. If you don't know what to pray to and you don't know how to connect, start there. Because we all have people and things in our life that do bring us closer to that feeling of expansiveness that, that you're after. And when you start paying attention to that and consciously bringing more of it into your life, that will naturally move you in that direction, if that makes sense. Oh, that's so, so good. And I and I know so many people listening were so feeling the words that you were saying because you're speaking them from a place of living through it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can't talk yourself out of it. You know, you can't talk yourself out of it. You can't 
you just have to just go really, at least, at least for me, who knows, maybe there are other people who can get, you know, just struck by lightning and all of a sudden they're, they're fine. But healing is a process just like your body heals, your spirit has to heal. And if you had a massive car accident, you don't just like jump right back on a bicycle. Right. I mean, you, you have to go through physical therapy. You have to heal. You have to, um, you have to, you know, go through the process of learning how to, how to walk again. And that's, it's literally the same thing. Spiritual injuries are just as real as physical injuries and probably more dangerous mm. because they attack who you are as a person. And so if you think about it in that way, like if you're spiritually injured, treat yourself like a, a beloved patient and be patient with yourself because you just have to have time. Oh, that's so good. That is so good. I think so many people and myself used to be this way, although in my late 30s, I have been more patient with myself. But you see a goal and you're like, I want to be like that. I want to change and I want to you know, get on board with that. And yet we forget that, like you said, healing takes time. And especially anything of spiritual nature, it's a journey. It's not a one and done thing. I wish it were. But for so many of us, it took years to get where we are to get the damage that's been done. It does take time to undo that. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. I mean, it really does. And I, and I wish that I'd had somebody to say that to me Yeah, and just say, you don't, it's not something you're not a problem to be fixed. You know, your life, it, it, it's, it's, you're on a journey. You said it exactly right. Anna. you know, it's a journey and there is no destination except death. And we don't want to hasten that. Right. right. So, so let yourself be on let yourself be on the journey of of, of healing and discovering, and I guess um, you know the biggest thing I would say to anyone out there who's dealing with that right now um, is I just want to reach through the airwaves and just you know you're not alone. It, it feels that way, but there are so many people who have been on this path and who have walked it. And come out on the other side, and you can too. You absolutely can. You just have to take it. It's once I call it couraging, being brave. You you just have to take it one step at a time, one day at a time, and be very um, and very very kind to yourself on the way. That's good. Couraging. See, you just have you have these one liners you keep dropping. I'm gonna like fill my desk up with post it notes. I love that. Couraging. Yes. So good. Well, I hope that will be. I hope that will be another book. I'm. I've been working on it for a while. Um, encouraging, brave is a verb. Oh, um, I love because, that. yeah, you know, one thing that I, when I look back at my where that came from, Anna, is um, when I look back at the journey, not just through the religions, uh, the thirty religions, but at the time, let's not forget, I was dealing with a health crisis, and as I look at that decade of dealing with that health crisis and not having an answer and keeping going from doctor to doctor. And as I look at my past self, like showing up and going to these religions, even though I didn't know what the heck I was doing. All I could, like people would say to me after the book came out, Oh my gosh, you were so brave. And I would look around and go, who, who was brave. <laughs> right. But everyone else could see it except me. And it took a little while for me to integrate that. Oh my gosh. I was so brave. I was so damn brave and I kept showing up and I kept following up and I kept doing those things and it was hard and horrible and I was brave. And so once I integrated that, I realized that 
when I felt like at the time I'm, I'm just barely making it through, or at many times I'm not even hanging on. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, barely making it. I wasn't, that's not what was happening. I was encouraging and I was encouraging really hard. And so I guess my encouragement to somebody out there who's listening, whether you're going through a spiritual crisis or a physical crisis, or in my case, both or mental health or grief or all of it, whenever you feel that you are the least brave, you are having to courage the hardest. And so you've got to look in the mirror and recognize your courage while you have it, because you need it right now. Like you don't need it in the rear view mirror. You don't need it seven years from now. You need it right now. And I'm just totally up on a soapbox about this because I feel like somebody out there needs to hear it <laughs> because it's so important. It's so good. It's so good. It's really important. And it, I mean, that goes for your spiritual search, but just, uh, just as well for all the other difficulties that we face um, is to, is to really recognize your own, your own bravery in that search. Oh my gosh. Yes. 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 And amen. And if we were in church right now, I'd be jumping up with tears down my face going, yes, amen. Yes. Because that is so, so very true. And so many people, and you see them on the outside and you're like, oh my gosh, you're being so strong, but they don't see it. And and I'm guilty of that too. In my darkest, hardest times, I think I'm just totally failing. And the world around me is like, you are amazing. We just don't see it. And so that, that, just what you just said is so real and so good. And I know so many people who heard that are going to just like feel that in their bones. So good. Well, I'm going to get real, real right now and tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm encouraging right now because I have, I have had a very rough year um, and have gone through, uh, went through a miscarriage and had a horrible postpartum depression that I'm still recovering Mm. from. Um, in addition to the grief of the, the miscarriage. And so when I'm talking about this, I'm preaching to myself too, because yes. I know firsthand that this is what it is. It's encouraging. Um, and so whenever I, you know, look in the mirror and I'm like, oh my God, I'm, you know, I have, feel tempted to say like, I, I, I'm falling apart. I'm, you know, whatever. And I'm like, no, no, encouraging. That's what I'm doing. And that shift in mindset, mm-hmm. um, it is, it, it doesn't fix anything, but it sure helps on the, those really hard days. Mm, it does. It does. And I think for all of us, we're all kind of encouraging in our own little space in our own little private time. And we think we're the only ones doing it, which is why we don't want to call it what it is. It's like, oh, I'm just barely getting through. But it's like, no, we're all feeling like we're barely getting through and we're all feeling like we're on the verge of some big pit that we're about to land in. But it's like those days that you pick up and you keep showing up and you keep moving. That's what it is. That's what you're describing. That's that couraging that you're talking about. And I love that you're putting language to it because there's not really much language for that thing, but you just gave it language. And that I appreciate that so much. It's so good. Take it all. Use it. I love you. <laughs> I, have, I bought these necklaces. I, 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 I got on Etsy and I um, got a, a necklace that says couraging, like in cursive. It's like a metal thing. Yeah. It was maybe $10 and I started wearing it and I found out I kept giving them away. And, and my husband finally said like, 
are you, should you just buy them in bulk? (laughs) Because I would be talking to someone and I would be like, oh my gosh, you are encouraging so hard right now. Like you've got to have this, like you need to wear this necklace right now. And, um, and I would give every single listener right now, a encouraging necklace if I could, if, if, if that resonates with you. Um, because it's just that when you, it's for me, it's like, let me hold the mirror up so you can see it because I can see it in you. You know, I know when I'm talking to my friend, for example, she's taking care of her mother-in-law who's stage four lung cancer. She's, she's too tired to drink wine. I mean, it's, you know, it's such a hard time. And I'm like, you're encouraging so hard. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And um, so anyway, I love you all. I would give you all encouraging necklaces if I could. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And I cannot wait for that book and that project that you're working on to come to fruition and you to come back and talk about it because that's so You got the first good. interview on but, this, Anna. I don't think I've ever... Oh, there you go. Um, I love it. Okay. So tell people where to find your book and tell people where to find you. So you can find my book uh, anywhere books are sold, but Amazon's always great. Um, if you search Reba Riley on... Uh, any platform, I will be the first thing that comes up. R I L E Y, Reba like McIntyre, but I don't sing. Um, I'm Reba Riley on um, Twitter. I'm Reba Riley author on Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can always email me also. I, I do my best to respond when I can. And um, yeah, the book is Post Traumatic Church Syndrome: One One Desperate Funny Healing Journey Through Thirty Religions, and I am the desperate and hopefully funny woman in question. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I will make sure and put links to your website on um, the show notes so it'll be easy for people to find that way. But I have just loved this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. Thank you, Anna. Thank you so much again. Hey there. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.